Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Good evening. You guys look good. It's good to worship with you, to be here tonight. Uh, it's been a long way from Alaska to come all the way across the country to be with you. Uh, my family sends greetings. They're praying for us. Uh, my team, the Alaska Chi Alpha staff, they're praying for you. Our small group leaders, they're actually praying for you right now that we would have an encounter with Jesus, that our lives would be impacted by him. And uh, our marketplace ministers, uh, tomorrow we have a breakout. This is my minute commercial that if you think God might be calling you to use your degree to help make a difference, listen, I believe that every single person in this room, that what God has done in you, he wants to do through you, and it goes beyond your college experience, it goes beyond your, your college time with Chi Alpha, that you can take the discipleship and you can leverage that overseas, you can leverage that in Alaska, you can leverage that in your marketplace. And if you're interested in seeing how that happens in Alaska and how that could possibly happen in your life, we have a breakout tomorrow. Come and and check it out. But that's really all I want to say about that tonight because I believe God is here with us, right? And that He wants to be with us and we need to hear His words tonight. One of the things I love about salts and, and these moments is that we set aside a time that is specific for encountering God. See, every person in this room, you have cut out time from your culture, from your your schedule, from your education, from your time with your family to be here in this moment. And the whole goal, listen, the whole goal is that we would be able to have an encounter with Jesus, to hear his voice in our lives, to allow our hearts and our minds to be changed. And so I want to start tonight that way. God has been moving already. Amen? Okay. But I want us to continue in that because I believe the words tonight are specific for people in this room. That there are people that God has been been organizing and orchestrating tonight specifically for you so that you can take your next step in relationship with him. So let's start with prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now. And God, we don't want to go through routine. We did not come here to just enjoy Philly, to eat cheesesteaks, to be with friends. God, we didn't come to hang out in a hotel, to, to have a college experience. God, whether we've, we began our walk with you a few months ago or whether we grew up with you, we recognize that you're in this place. And God, we want you to, to soften our hearts, to open up our minds, to, to allow us to, to experience and encounter you because this walk with you is more than just head knowledge. It is experiential. You are a God that is alive and well. You are a God that wants to interact with us, that wants to walk this life with us, not just here, but all in eternity. Jesus, be with us tonight. God, allow our hearts to be softened. Open up our mind in your precious name. Amen. I want to begin with a story. I love stories. I think uh, Jesus did too, right? He told parables. Jesus was a storyteller. I think stories are good. Uh, One of my favorite stories, I don't know if it's favorite, but one of the stories that I I like to tell is about a guy named Larry Walters. I think I've got a picture of him. Larry Walters, when he was a teenager, he was all about flight. So he wanted to become an Air Force pilot. He eventually thought maybe he'd fly like a Delta in one of the major airlines. But the problem was is that as 
Larry got a little bit older, he discovered that because of poor eyesight and some other health conditions, that he would never fly a plane. And so he, he kind of got, uh, gave up on his dream and, and his life career choice was to drive a truck. And so he crisscrossed country driving truck and delivering goods. And, and, but eventually somewhere in his mid thirties, he decided that he wasn't going to give up on his dream. And so he was wandering through the, the streets of his town in Northern California, and he came across a, a army surplus Navy store. And, and as he walked through the store, he started to have this idea that he could still fly. And so he went over and he saw that they were selling small weather balloons. Basically, these were balloons that would measure four feet across. And he bought them all out. He bought 42 weather balloons. He went over to a different aisle. He bought paracord and some rope. And then he went over to the, the local hardware store and bought a lawn chair. You see, he had this bright idea that he would essentially fill these weather balloons with helium, attach them to a lawn chair, and then float up into the sky, achieving his lifelong dream of flight. He realized that this might be risky, so he enlisted his girlfriend and his other childhood friend, and, and they came up with what you see in this plan, and they decided that, that you know, they did the math, they weren't necessarily mathematicians, but they figured 42 balloons was enough, three cords that were attached to the bumper of his Jeep would be the ballast that would hold him down. And the decision was is to allow him to basically ascend to two or 300 feet above his home where he would have a sandwich, drink a soda. He loaded up his BB gun and had some ballast on his lawn chair so that when he decided to come down, he would shoot some of the balloons and that he would then be able to descend to his uh, home location. In 1982, Larry climbed into his chair and he released the first line that was attaching him to the ground. The other two cords that were attached to the bumper were supposed to sustain him. The problem was is they had not done their math. And so when they cut that first cord, Larry shot up like a rocket. And what they said was, is when the other two cords broke, it sounded like a gunshot going off. And Larry didn't go a couple hundred feet into the air. He didn't go 500 or even 1,000 or, or 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 feet in the air. Eventually, a Delta pilot radioed the tower, reporting that he passed a man in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet in the air. 16,000 feet, three miles, at which, because Larry did not devise a safety strap system in his chair, he was really concerned about shooting balloons with his pellet gun. The temperatures became frigid. Eventually, he floated into airspace for LAX, caused all sorts of problems, and after nearly three hours in sub-zero temperatures, the helium in the, the balloons, the, what is the word? Dissipated, thank you. I wanted to say depacitated, but it's not. It's dissipated. And so Larry descended into a neighborhood a few hours away from his home, finally landing in power lines, blocking out the neighborhood for nearly 30 minutes 
And somehow, this man escaped death and disaster. The police had been tracking him for miles, along with a crew of reporters that finally came to him and helped him come down out of his very sturdy lawn chair, and upon which he was immediately arrested for the illegal flight of lawn chairs, right? And as he was being put into the police car, a reporter yelled out to Larry, why? Why did you do this, Larry? And Larry's statement has echoed in my brain for most of my life, a man just can't sit around. A man just can't sit around. Larry ended up on, what is it, with David Letterman, late night show. And you begin to discover the depth of their planning if you would decide to watch that episode with David Letterman. And what you hear him talk about is essentially this being his greatest ambition for his life was now fulfilled that he had achieved ultimate peace in his existence. It was a pretty exciting time, a couple years of publicity, but pretty soon everybody forgot about Larry, the, the hot air balloon guy. He went back to his job. His girlfriend ended up breaking up with him and, and leaving him. He falls into substance abuse. His job fires him. He can't find work. Life kind of spirals out of control, and 10 years to the date, Larry finds himself in a national forest in California with a handgun, and he takes his life and leaves a note saying, a man just can't sit around. You see, the problem is, is that Larry looked to this world and to this life for something that could bring him meaning and purpose, something that might be able to, to bring fulfillment to his existence on this planet. The problem is he looked to flight. He looked to 42 weather balloons in a lawn chair that somehow that would sustain him. And for as long as humanity has been on this globe, we've been asking essentially the same question. What is the meaning? What is the purpose? What is my destiny in this world? And I hate to break it to you guys as a Chi Alpha pastor. I know what it is when you're a senior, you've done your internships, you've got the job opportunities, and so many of my seniors have shown up and they've sat across from me in a coffee shop or in a, a place on our campus, and they, they basically say, what's next? What do I do? What's my destiny? Tonight, I want to deal with what I would call the motive of your life. And I want to look at a, a very unlikely place in the Old Testament at a story that, that many of you have probably heard about at about some point in life. If you've watched, like I think it's Disney's Prince of Egypt, you probably have some sort of context about where we're going in the Old Testament with Moses and, and uh, Israel and about how they've been enslaved with Egypt, set free and then given the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting is that this portion of Scripture, I believe, gives us three components or three factors to understand about how 
to determine your destiny with God. You see, if we put our destiny in the hands of this world, of our career, of our relationships, of our possessions, of the the things that, that everyone and every part of our culture says this is what it's about, my instinct is to tell you that we'll probably end up somewhere in our journey very in a very similar position to our friend Larry. But if we're able to crack the code, if we're able to understand what destiny is about and about how to live the true destiny that will sustain us in this life and eternity, I believe that we will not only affect our meaning and our purpose, but will change the world in which we live. And students, look at me. I believe that those in this world are called, those in this room are called to change the world. Every fall, I stand in front of our students in Fairbanks, nowhere, Alaska. I refer to them as the frozen chosen, people not smart enough to go to Hawaii, all right? Where it's dark, like dark, where it's negative 50 degrees, where like polar bears live. And I tell them we're gonna change the world from nowheresville, Alaska because we understand how to chase the destiny that God has for our lives. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. We'll begin reading in verse 18. You're gonna have to engage your brains with me today, okay? Um, You're gonna have to like this, I apologize, but this is a little bit more of a, a, a message that requires some understanding and some background, and so you're gonna have to just kinda latch on with me. We're gonna get to the the factors of destiny in just a second. But as I mentioned, let me just give you this this background. So we've got Israel. You guys understand the people of Israel. Everybody everybody knows Israel, raise your hand. Anybody anybody know who Moses is? You heard that guy? Heard of that guy? Okay, you've heard of Moses. You heard of the 10 commandments? Those are the do's and don'ts, right, of Christianity? Everybody's like, I hate those things. Listen, the do's and don'ts, it's not what it is. I tell my students all the time, these are not the laws of keeping you from having fun. These are the laws of love. God gave us the laws about how to love other people and how to love him. These are the 10 miraculous laws of love. But the story begins long before this particular moment. So Israel uh, ends up in Egypt because God is rescuing them through a guy named Joseph. They survive a famine, but then they spend 430 years in Egypt. And during that time, Egypt enslaves Israel. And then God sends this guy named Moses to set his people free. You guys familiar with what I'm talking about? And then... He uses the 10 plagues. You guys know what I'm talking about that, 10 plagues of Egypt. All right, so 10 miraculous moments where God defies the gods of Egypt and basically proves to the Israelites and to Egypt that he's the only one God. We don't have time to get it in tonight, but every plague corresponds with one of the pagan gods that Egypt was worshiping, and God was using those plagues to defy those gods to prove to Israel and to Egypt he's the only one. So now Israel is free, and he's a, they're, sending, he's, they're traveling through the wilderness, and they come to this mountain called Mount Sinai, and this is where, about, where we're about to pick up the story. But in this story, in chapter 20 of Exodus, it is actually what is called a sovereign vassal treaty. Any lawyers or legal people in the room tonight? Not a person. Awesome. All right. I'll explain it to you then. All right. So a sovereign vassal treaty, the Sinaitic sovereign vassal treaty is a common treaty that existed in history at this time. 
And this is basically a contract that gets written between a sovereign, a king, and a vassal, someone who uh, is supposed to serve the king. And in this particular instance, it's for those people that were enslaved by a different king who were rescued by a new sovereign, right? And there describes in this treaty their relationship, but not just their relationship, but how they're going to interact and engage, which is the Ten Commandments. It is a sovereign vassal treaty that God is setting up. You will be my people. I will be your God. This is how you'll treat each other, and this is how you'll treat me. But what's interesting is that these verses we're about to read in 18 and 21 is that it's not contract. It's narrative. How many people know like a legal contract breaks into narrative? That's not what happens. But all of a sudden, you have this contract that's going on, and Scripture breaks into narrative to tell us how Israel responds to the contract that God is trying to create with his people that he loves. And this is where we can discover these three factors, these three components about how to affect their destiny. Because what we see in this narrative is Israel establishing the direction for their relationship with God moving forward. And if we can understand how they establish their destiny, we might be able to learn from some of their mistakes and we might be able to establish our destiny in this world. Are you guys with me? I'm worried. All right. Everybody's with me. Let's start by reading Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. Remember, narrative. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So the first factor in determining your destiny in this life and with God is simply this, desire. What's interesting is that we see clearly in Scripture that God's desire is for Israel and is for you. If you go to 19, chapter 19, verses five to six, it says this, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, this is God speaking to Israel, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people. He's talking to Moses. And what we see in this text is that God desires Israel to be a treasured possession. And we read throughout the entirety of Scripture, the whole book is about God's desire for you to be in reconciled relationship with him. How many people believe that this book is the story of salvation? You guys familiar? It's actually not. I appreciate that, man. Way to jump in. It was a trick question. This is not our story. I'm going to burst all of your bubbles. This is not our story. If this is our story, this place humanity at the center of all existence in eternity. That's a narcissistic perspective of what this is. The character that exists from the beginning to the end is not humanity, it's God. This is God's story. 
It's God's story of creating a people that he loved and he treasured and about how they were selfish and rejected him. And they said, we don't want anything to do with you. And as a result, God continues throughout the rest of this book to make an effort to be in right relationship with his people, trying to find a way to restore that relationship. What we see here is that God desires us. John 3.16 makes it really clear when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he would do anything to be in right relationship with you. But here's the kicker for you and for me is that God's desire for us must be matched with our desire for him. You see, we can read in scripture that Israel did not really desire God. They desired what God could do for them, right? In Exodus 14, 11, it's, they were crossing the Red Sea. They grumbled and they said, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have brought us out here into the wilderness to die? God, we don't really want you. We want you to rescue us. In Exodus 15, when the water was bitter at Merah, they grumbled and complained and saying, we don't have any water to drink. They didn't want God. They wanted the water that they could, he could provide for them. In Exodus 16, 3, they grumbled about food. In the land of Egypt, they said, we had meat pots and the bread to, ate bread to our full before you have brought us into the wilderness to kill us. We see throughout the entire Old Testament, students, listen, that when Israel repented and sought a relationship with God, it was when they needed him to fix something for them. God was and is and continues to be faithful to his covenant relationship. When he says in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The problem is, is that Israel wanted a God that could be seen and manipulated to be a genie in a bottle. Their desire was not really for God, but for themselves. Desire is a funny thing, right? It makes us do funny things. You ever seen a guy who's like so desirous of a young lady, like totally make a fool of himself? I was that guy when I was in college, absolutely, 100%. Um, desire and the, the, the hope of achieving or accomplishing something will drive us, will drive us to do things that we don't expect or often would do under a logical situation. When I was uh, a young man in ministry, I think I was probably 22, 23 years old, I was a pastor at a church in Cleveland, and we were out with some students, and to make a long story short, we were uh, out late, and I put my hand on the car, and the door was open, and one of my students went by, and they slammed that car door, not realizing that my fingers were inside. You guys ever have anything like that happen to you? Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, I've been there. And Luckily, it was like to the point where they were going to get crushed and bones broken, but the tip of my one finger was in there far enough that it created an incredible amount of pressure. And as I jerked my hand out, I realized that a, a blood blister was going to develop underneath that fingernail. Now, I pretend to be a tough guy, right? 
I was a missionary in Asia for a decade. We live in Alaska. You know, we hunt and we shoot things and we catch fish and we eat them like, like we're men. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess, is that okay? All right. So just want to make sure. I, I, I was telling Matt, Pastor Matt, that I was concerned a little bit because of the culture difference. You guys recognize there's a culture difference from where I come from and where you live. It's not bad, but it's just different. And we need to understand each other. All right. So it's... Anyway, moving on. I don't know why we went down that rabbit path. Finger, car, blood blister, right? And so as the night progressed, that blood blister continues to grow and expand. And because there's no room for it to expand underneath the nail, it's causing an incredible amount of pain. And so I come home that night. I talk to my wife. I was like, I don't know what to do about this, this crazy thing. I wrap some, take some Tylenol, wrap a Band-Aid or something around it, hoping to relieve it. But all night long, I could not sleep. And so I decided that I needed to relieve the pressure underneath my fingernail, right? Some of you are with me. And so when I was a kid, I sat across the table from one of my uncles who had a blood blister and he stuck a paperclip or a piece of metal in a flame and he got it hot and he burned through his fingernail to relieve the pressure. And I remember that blood just kind of squirting out. And so I'm a bit of like a tool man kind of guy. And so I go to the garage and, and I get my propane torch out and I grab a pair of pliers and a, and a paper clip and I heat that puppy up and it's like burning hot. And I go to put it on my finger and push it on it. But for some reason, the heat of that paper clip would not hold on. It wouldn't hold the heat. Whatever material or metal it was made out of it, dissipate too quick. There's that word again, dissipate too quick. And by the time I pushed on my fingernail, the pressure wasn't, it wasn't burning through the nail. It was simply adding pressure to the nail, which was causing more frustration. So at six o'clock in the morning, I remember going inside, waking my wife up saying, what am I gonna do? She's like, rolls over, says, you'll figure it out. I go back into my garage, <laughs> right? I walk into my garage and I'm scanning the tools. And off in the corner, I have what is called a drill press. Some of you are with me, let's go. So this is like an industrial drill upright press. It's six feet tall. This is a sweet tool. It is a precision instrument designed to drill perfectly straight holes. And as I scan the room, I go, oh, that might work. And I have this thought, I believe it was the Holy Spirit, said this. Don't do that, that's stupid. <laughs> but I had desire in my life to relieve a little bit of pain. And I looked at it and I thought, if I put the smallest drill I have in the press and I, I you know, put my hand on there and I run it to the lowest speed and I drill really carefully, I bet I can slowly drill through the nail of my finger and it will relieve the pressure, this will be perfect. And so I go over there, I do the whole thing. I, I set out my safety goggles on the, the, the deck because I'm like, I gotta be safe, right? And I have this moment of looking as I put those goggles on, I'm like, man, this is probably not a good idea. I was like, no, no, I can do this because the pain is driving me nuts. And so no lie, I put my hand on the pad of that drill press and I flipped the switch and the whirring started and I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is gonna be good. And I start to lower it down and as I lower it down, I have again this thought that this is perhaps a bad idea. <laughs> Pushing through with desire, I decided that instead of going further, I would just add a little bit of pressure up because I was concerned about drilling through my finger. Well, if you've ever used a drill, 
you'll know that when a sharp drill goes through a hard substance and enters into a soft substance, it will grab. And so as I added pressure up on that nail bed, it broke through and it grabbed and it pulled my hand up into that drill and I drilled through my finger. I pulled my hand off that drill. I'm slinging blood all over the garage. I take my shirt off. I wrap up my hand. I come into the garage. My wife is drinking coffee and she looks at me and says essentially this, you are stupid. (laughs) And I held up my bloody hand and I said, but it doesn't hurt anymore. (laughs) Right? I had the opportunity to play college basketball at a small private school, and I remember this. My coach used to tell us all the time, you do what you want. You do what you want. What he meant by that is that your desire, the things that are in the heart of your life, will betray themselves by your actions. Will betray themselves by your actions, your desire. Listen to me, students. We live in a world that tells us that I am most important that my happiness is the goal, that I can have it my way, it can be custom made, personalized, that we do not have the freedom, for, we do not just have the freedom for the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, we have the right to happiness. We live in a self-centered, narcissistic, egocentric world that has replaced the worship of God with the worship of self. The problem with the world today is not that people don't believe in God, it is that they do not want God. They do not want God to be the center of their lives. They do not want him to make decisions. They do not want to make decisions based on God, God's laws, his principles or morals. We don't want to spend our time, money, or energy on God because our desire is not for God. It's for ourselves. You see, desiring God above personal gain, our comfort, our safety in our lives is counter to our humanity and our self-centered nature. Students, determining your destiny begins with this simple little idea of choosing to desire God. Desiring God means centering him. It means centering his love, his purposes, his plans above our own. It means making God the integration point of our lives. Hear me this, I know that the integration point has like a coding meaning it has a mathematical meaning. What I mean by this, this integration point, it is the point that everything is filtered through in our lives. You see, when we read this text about the people of Israel, we can see clearly that Moses says, Moses' first desire was for God. In Exodus 33, he says, if your presence doesn't go with us, we do not go. And he asks God's glory to be the first thing that he has and he sees when he encounters him. But when we look at this story and we understand what's happening here in this narrative of this contract, we see that the people of Israel did not desire God. They desired Moses to be their intermediary for him. Do you desire God tonight? Or do you desire what he can do for you? The second component of determining your destiny tonight is found in the first section of this text when it says, and when the people saw the thunder and the flashes and the lightning of the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled, and here it is, and they stood far off. 
You see, what's interesting is our desire will affect our distance. The people stood far off. They wanted someone else to interact with God on their behalf. But God wanted his people to experience his presence, to hear his voice. God's desire was for them to come close. Their desire was to stay far away. In Hebrews 12, 21, like if you're trying to give them some grace and say, listen, this was a scary moment, it absolutely was. In Hebrews 12, 21, though, it describes Moses' experience in this moment, and it says, it was a terrifying sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but in this moment, he overcame his fear with the desire to know God. There's a couple other test cases that are going on in this story. Two guys named Aaron and Joshua. Aaron was the brother of Moses, he was the chief priest. But we read in scripture, we recognize that Aaron desired power and recognition more than God. And God invited him to the foot of the mountain, but we later read in Exodus 24 and then 32 that Aaron was not found at the mountain. Instead, he was found back with the people. And this is where he helped them make a golden calf to become idolatrous people and reject God, even though they could see him on the mountain. You see, Aaron's desire caused distance from God, and as a result, it caused them to be rebellious to him. Joshua, though, who was the understudy, the, the mentor, the kid that was being mentored by Moses, desired God more than anything. And so, again, we find him in Exodus 32, waiting at the foot of the mountain. And later on, in Exodus 33, that he would enter the tent of meetings where God's presence was, and he wouldn't leave. The truth is, is that distance from God will diminish your desire for God and ultimately your destiny. And interestingly, the converse is true. Hear this, that closeness to God often requires distance from the world. As God's people, we must not only want God, but we have to move towards him. You guys ready for another story? Okay. I get a little heavy, then we get a little laugh, then we get a little heavy, all right? You with me? Following the pattern? All right. You guys still with me tonight? All right, thank you. Oh, we gotta hurry. You guys are gonna get tired. Distance matters. When I was in college, I was learning how to hunt I'm not trying to be offensive to anyone here, but just understand that that's a cultural thing up in Alaska. And I was in Springfield, Missouri, and my, where I went to school, and one of the things that we hunted out there were turkeys. You guys ate turkey for Thanksgiving, most of you. And I, I grew up in Detroit, so I really didn't know what I was doing, and so I watched some videos, read some books, looked at some magazines, and discovered that to hunt turkeys, you sit on the edge of the woods, they roost in trees, they fly out into a field, you set up a decoy, you make some calls, they come, they hang out, try to hang out with their friends, and then you shoot them. And, and that's kind of the process, right? And so that's just what you do. And so I'm, I'm doing this thing. I'm, I'm covered in camouflage, I'm sitting on the edge of the woods, I've figured out that the birds are up behind me and and there's this field and I put up a decoy and I start making calls in the middle of the dark and pretty soon these birds fly over my head, they land in the field, my heart is beating, I'm excited, I'm thrilled, like this is, this is what it's all about, I'm stoked. And this bird wanders within range so he's coming up to my decoy and I 
lean my shotgun up and I, I pick my shotgun up, I point at it and the bead hits the head of that bird and I squeeze the trigger, the gun goes off and the bird flopping around because I've taken my first turkey, right? I'm totally excited about this moment. I lean my shotgun up against the tree and I start walking out across this field. Now the field where the effective range of a 12 gauge shotgun is approximately 50 yards. And so I, I walk out to this bird and as I get to be about this close to this turkey, uh, the turkey realizes that it's not as shot as it thought it was. <laughs> and it finds its feet. And here we are a couple yards away looking at each other. And he's just staring at me. And in my mind, I have this thought. My shotgun is 50 yards behind me. But what I really want is right in front of me. And so I've got a decision to make, right? The turkey makes his decision first. He takes off running. I make an instant decision. I was a college athlete. I thought I could catch this turkey. And so I take off running after it. And so here's a six foot six white guy covered in camouflage, looking like the swamp thing, chasing a wild turkey in circles in an open field, okay? So I'm literally going after this bird and after about 20 seconds, I realize there's no way in the world I'm catching this wild turkey. And so I do the only thing that I can think to do, I dove and I tackled a wild turkey. So as I wrestle this bird to the ground, the bird is swinging back and it is whacking me in the head. Did you know that turkeys have spurs on their legs? It could be up to two inches and it's digging and it's fighting me and I'm wrestling this wild bird on the ground and I finally get it up underneath my arm, right? And I've got a 30 pound bird. And what do you do with the bird underneath your arm? What do you do with birds? Ring its neck. So I grab its head and with all of my might, I twist. Did you know that a turkey's head can rotate 180 degrees? <laughs> And so here we are looking at each other. <laughs> the best part of that story is the landowner was out having his morning coffee on his deck. <laughs> he heard the shotgun and watched this whole thing happen. And as I came up to my truck, he just came over. I was proud as a peacock. And he looked at me, he goes, what were you doing out there? Listen, it's a funny story to simply illustrate this idea that distance matters. Distance matters. I can tell you your destiny based upon how you close the distance to God and God's people or how you distance yourself from God and God's people. I can watch my students and predict where they'll be at the end of their college career simply based on how close they're willing to allow their lives to be connected to their small group, to be connected to their community. You see, isolation, distance will kill your walk with Jesus. We see it in scripture, the people of Israel, they, they didn't desire God and as a result, it caused them to distance themselves from him. Instead, we need to close the distance and we need to come close to Jesus. The third component, factor, whatever you want to call that we want to look at tonight about destiny is simply this. It is decision. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes and we see all that and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear God. 
For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I'll highlight a couple things from this text in this This story is simply this, this word saw in verse 18. It doesn't mean that they saw with their eyes. It basically has this meaning of perceived. They perceived with everything that they had, every bit of their senses. So with their eyes and their ears and their their emotions and, and their being, they saw and experienced God. When we decide, listen, we have the opportunity to recognize the presence of God and he was overwhelming to their senses, but the perception needs to draw us closer to him instead of driving us away. It can cause fear. It caused fear among the people. It caused fear among Moses. But God's intent was not fear, but to show his majesty, his power, and his glory. Students, if you've ever been in the awe-inspiring presence of God, How can fear not be a part of that equation? But we have a choice to decide, to choose, to overcome that fear and step in, or to allow the fear to control our lives, to run away. So many of us live complacent lives with Jesus because we're afraid of what he might ask of us. We live complacent lives with Jesus because we're afraid he might mess our plans and our purposes. He might ask us to deal with our desires. We need to learn to decide in the face of fear. My brother was a special ops Marine, worked for a unit called MARSOC. He's a decorated war hero, spent seven tours overseas. And after one of them, we sat on the the deck of my parents, and I just asked him the simple question, aren't you afraid? And he just kind of looked at me and he said, Paul, courage is not the absence of fear, it's the ability to make a decision to act in spite of that fear. But then you get to this verse in verse 20. I don't know if you guys picked this up, but it says, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. You guys are college students, how many of you like that word, test? How many of you like the idea that God is out there testing you? Hopefully you don't. Maybe I'm the only one that that like reviles underneath that, like, wait a second. This word again is kind of interesting because it doesn't mean like this pass or fail, like prove yourself. Instead, this word test has more to do with like what's part of it, like the DNA kind of test. Not to see how you will respond, but to show what you are made of. And so if that's the kind of test that's going on, I have to ask the question, why does God need to test us? Is he omniscient or not? That means he knows everything. Does God know everything or not? If he's God, he should know. So why does he need to test me? He knows what's inside of me. In fact, David says, no man knows their own heart except God. And so all of a sudden, I'm forced to this moment in Scripture saying, I, I don't understand because I, if God is testing me, there's got to be more than, than like pass or fail. It's DNA. It's got to be more than he wants to see inside. And the conclusion is simply this. God is not testing them so that he knows what's inside of them. He's testing them so that they know what's inside of them. You see, he tests us to expose our sinfulness and our humanity in comparison to him. 
Only compared to God can we truly recognize our true identity as sinful and lost creatures. Isaiah 6, 5, when the prophet Isaiah encounters God, the presence of the Lord, he cries out and says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. What will we decide to do with our lives? What will we do, what will we decide to do when we are in the presence of God? We had a young man named Lloyd in our community. Lloyd is uh, a genuine Eskimo. Now, that's not an appropriate term in Alaska. We don't call people Eskimos, um, but you probably do, wouldn't understand what I was saying if I said he was in you back, right? And so Lloyd is from the most northern village in North America. It's called Utkiavik. It's literally the top of the world. It's the second most northern inhabited place in the world. They have three months of darkness and three months of daylight. It's a wild place. In our first year, when we were pioneering Chi Alpha in Alaska, we had some students come from Utkiavik, and they were from, uh, from the village where Lloyd was at. They got saved. In fact, one of his best friends from high school, a guy named Daniel, was the first young man that was baptized in our community in my garage in a made-up tank in the middle of December. And what was wild is, is that Daniel and his friend, they went back up to Utkiavik over the summer and their lives were so radically changed that when Lloyd encountered them, he couldn't figure out what had happened in their lives. And so Lloyd, not interested in college, decided to move to Fairbanks just to see what was going on, right? That's, kind of, that's called like a testimony, guys. Can you imagine the people in your life so radically shocked by the change in your life, that they show up at Chi Alpha just because they can't make sense of what has happened to you. So Lloyd shows up. He's literally moved his residence nine hours south, away from his family, to our town, just to figure this out. So for months, we loved on Lloyd, connected him to a small group, and, but Lloyd was having nothing with Jesus. He just couldn't wrap his brain around it and so even though he loved the community, was connected in a small group, was coming to our large groups, he wasn't going to have a walk with him. I remember it was sometime uh, early second semester, and I got a phone call from Lloyd early in the morning, and it basically was this, I need to give my life to Jesus, how do I do that? And he told me this story. He said, last night, I went to sleep, and he was went to sleep and, and essentially he had a dream. And as Lloyd dreamed, he said, I saw myself in the open tundra. I think, I don't know, is there a picture of Lloyd? Do we have a picture of Lloyd? Maybe, maybe not. There's Lloyd. Isn't he a fun guy? Such a cool dude. So Lloyd is in the tundra. Now, we don't really have a, a mind for this here in where we live in this part of the country. But the tundra is endless, it's vast. And it was in the middle of winter, so all of that space was completely white. And he said in his dream, he knew immediately that he was lost. And so he knew that this was essentially a death sentence because as he saw himself in his dream, he started to begin to spin around and look and there's zero landmarks, there's zero direction. It's just endless white. 
But finally, as he turns, he looks off and he sees a black dot in the distance and he starts running off across the tundra and he comes to this black dot in the snow and as he approaches it, he recognizes it as a Bible. And instantly he tells me, he goes, Paul, I knew the answer to my lostness was in this book. So he bends down and he's desperate and he opens up the book and as he looks in the book, to his shock and his dismay, the pages are blank. He wakes up and he knows what the dream means. He knows that he has not allowed himself to understand, to grasp what has been written in this book. He walks over, his roommate Daniel, he walks over to their nightstand. It's three o'clock in the morning. He opens up the Bible and he begins to read the New Testament. And by nine o'clock in the morning when he calls me, he's read most of the New Testament and he simply says, I have to make a decision to follow Jesus. You see, guys, our lives are not made up of our hopes and our dreams. They're made up of the decisions and the actions that we choose to live. I'm gonna have the worship team come and they're gonna play in the background for a minute, but I believe that God wants to, excuse me, deal with us tonight. We still have a few minutes that I believe that we can respond. See, as I think about this story in the Old Testament and the people of Israel, I can't help but recognize that their response to God, desiring God, to distancing themselves from him and deciding to let someone be intermediary for them determined the destiny of Israel until Jesus came back. You see, as you look at this story, you begin to realize that Israel would wrestle with God over and over and over again because they could not figure out how to love God for who he was. They could not figure out how to draw near to him. They could not figure out how to make decisions that would affect their destiny. And tonight, I believe that each and every one of us has the opportunity to take a step closer to Jesus. And I've wrestled most of this afternoon about how to ask you to respond. And I really believe there's like three obvious responses here. There's three obvious opportunities. The first is simply this, do you desire God? And if you don't, why not? There came this point in my life where I realized that I couldn't like manufacture a desire for God. And so what I began to pray was, Lord, Help me want to want you. Begin to change my heart. Begin to change my desire. Help me to want to want you. And so I believe that there are people in this room that need to adjust their heart. You need to fix your desire on Jesus. But that might mean distancing yourself from other things. Let me just get real real with you guys. 
Do you desire your career more than Jesus? Do you desire the approval of your parents more than what God has for you? Do you desire your career, your home, your future, your mate, your spouse, your, your possessions more than what he has? And if the answer is maybe at all, the opportunity is to come and, and say, Jesus, I want to want you. And so if you need to deal with your desire tonight, I want you to come over here and you're just gonna come and pray. Like there's nothing crazy magical about this. Like this is not some wild thing other than I'm surrendering my desire to you, Jesus. And I want my life to matter for eternity in a way that it doesn't right now. The second one is distance. And I would ask those people that need to like deal with distance, maybe come here, somewhere in the middle. And this is like, you need to, you've been kind of playing and keeping God at the arm's length, right? You, you know who Jesus is. You, you want to like be a Christian, but you don't necessarily want to allow yourself to get too close. Maybe it means you're keeping your small group at a distance or your community at a distance, but you need to, to reach in and you need to surrender and say, Jesus, I want to be in your presence. I want to be as close to you as I possibly can. And then I think there's this third group over here that I would call the decision group. And there's two pieces here. I would say this is the decision group that, that I need to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. Remember that the beginning, the whole context of the book is that Jesus wants us to be in relationship with him. And perhaps you're here tonight and you've never made a decision to, to walk with Jesus. Perhaps you have knew Jesus growing up, but you're not walking with Jesus. Everybody thinks you are, but you're really not. And you need to decide. You need to actually like put feet to action and, and move in a direction and, and make a decision. So if, if you need to make your life right with Jesus, come over here. I'm gonna have some, the Kyle staff and people over here, find someone, whether you've walked with Jesus before, this is your first time, find a Kyle staff, they have a lanyard on, and say, I wanna make a decision just like Lloyd. I wanna make Jesus my Lord. They will walk you through that. And they will help you make that decision and talk to Jesus about it and allow him to be your Lord and your Savior. The Bible makes it really clear. It's you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. You believe that Jesus died for you, that God wants a restored relationship with you, and then you open up your mouth and you confess it. And when we do that, it's like activating that faith. It moves us closer to him. The other distance, or decision, wow, there's three Ds, hard for me. The other decision is there are people that God is tapping you on the shoulder saying, I want you to go be a missionary overseas. I want you to be a Chi Alpha pastor. I want you to be a pastor in a local church. I want you to be a marketplace minister. 95% of the people in this room will end up in the marketplace. But that doesn't mean you don't have the opportunity and the responsibility to make disciples, to invest in your church. And you need to decide that you're gonna spend your life making disciples, not making a paycheck. I'm gonna pray, you guys stand. Is everybody clear on what we're doing? 
If the Lord is speaking to you, do not stay in your seat. Do not stand far off and watch. Do you guys hear me? Your destiny could be at stake tonight. More importantly, the destiny of people around you could be at stake. You draw near, they'll draw near, and the world will be changed. But if we stay at a distance and let other people do it on our behalf, we will lose our destiny and the world will not be changed. Jesus, we come to you right now. We beg and we plead and we ask, oh God. Lord, make yourself real and alive and well. God, let your Holy Spirit move through this room. God, if if people need to distance themselves from the world, God, if they need to confess sin and reject the habitual things that are keeping them from you, God, that they will be willing to do that. Lord, if they've wrestled with desire, Lord Jesus, that they would be able to lay down their own selfishness for the sake of knowing you and genuinely loving you. God, that we would be men and women of courage. Courage, Lord Jesus. That I will decide to follow you. Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you come? Come now. Find a place to pray. Come to the altar. Do not hesitate. We're going to spend 10 minutes here. Do not stay far off. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. To give a shout of joy. To give a shout of joy and praise the Lord. For He is good. For He is mighty. For He is worthy. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank you for a timely, timely word. Thank you, Jesus, for this time of worship. Thank you for the chains that are being broken right now, Lord. That you're beginning something new here, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you're just getting started. That there is something more that you want for us. There's something more, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Prepare our hearts for the rest of this week, Lord God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.